Hello, welcome to episode one of Waterboat Women. My name is Freya Walsey, and I want to get things going by reading a few chapters from a book set in my hometown of Oxford. This is a book by James Attlee called Isolarian. It follows Attlee's journey down Cowley Road, a street that is well known to its locals, but to the outside is very often overshadowed by the sprawling campus of the university and the other tourist hotspots Oxford has to offer. James Attlee is a brilliant writer. I first picked up one of his books, Nocturne, during a visit to the Turner Gallery in Margate. The exhibition was called A Place That Only Exists in Moonlight by Katie Patterson and featured work by J.M.W. Turner himself. It was an exploration of space and the night sky. It was wonderful. One of the installations featured a player piano performing a version of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, only this version was based on a recording that had been beamed up to the moon and back again, complete with radio interference patterns and gaps in the score. Nocturne was sitting on a shelf amongst other recommendations by Katie Patterson. I really enjoyed the book, and it left me wanting to read more. Enter Isolarian. The pilgrimage starts at the top of Cowley Road, at a place called The Pub, Oxford, which was once more imaginatively called the Cape of Good Hope, and ending at the Mini Cooper plant. It's a fascinating psychogeographical trip that takes the reader down the most culturally vibrant and buzzing street in Oxford. Me and my family moved around the city a lot before we eventually settled in Rose Hill, which is an area just south of Cowley Road. Reading James's descriptions of my favourite part of Oxford didn't just transport me back to the place itself, but rekindled embers of distant memories made during my time working behind the bar at the Hilo Jamaican Eating House. Memories at the Bullingdon watching bands with my friends, of buying alcohol at the Dodgy Deli and getting ingredients for my dad's famous dal from Continental, the Indian supermarket. Through his writing, James hones in on the minute, finding inspiration in the intricate details and unique characters which collide together along Cowley Road and paints a vivid and exciting picture of an atmosphere that, to those who know it well, feels like a place unlike anywhere in the world. Yet, as he states in the book, it is both unique and nothing special. It could be any number of streets in your town. For that reason alone, it seems as good a place as any from which to start a journey. I want to take a moment to thank James Attlee and his publishers and other stories for giving me permission to share this book with you. Now let's begin. There is an old road in my neighbourhood that follows approximately the path that ran between the city walls of Oxford and the medieval leper hospital at Barthelmers and beyond it to the village of Cowley. Until the beginning of the 19th century, farmers still grazed their flocks and made hay in the unenclosed meadows and marshland that lay outside the city wall. Cowley Road is now the main thoroughfare through East Oxford, connecting the academic and touristic heart of the city with the Cowley Works, the car factory that in its heyday in the 1960s employed over 20,000 people and has been a magnet for immigrant workers since the 1920s. Its name is derived from the Anglo-Saxon, a combination of the word lee, a glade or clearing in the forest, and the name kofa, kofa's glade. Today it is lined with businesses that seem to represent every nation on earth. Among them are Jamaican, 
Bangladeshi, Indian, Polish, Kurdish, Chinese, French, Italian, Thai, Japanese and African restaurants. Sari shops, cafes, fast food outlets, electronic stores, a florist, a Ghanaian fishmonger, pubs, bars, three live music venues, tattoo parlours, betting shops, a Russian supermarket, a community centre, a publisher, the headquarters of an international NGO, musical instrument vendors, butchers, three cycle shops, two video rental stores, post offices, two mosques, three churches, a Chinese herbalist, a pawn shop, a police station, two record shops, two centres of alternative medicine, a 24-hour Tesco, an independent cinema, call centres, three sex shops, numerous grocers, letting agencies, a bingo hall and a lap-dancing establishment that plies its trade on Sundays. Why make a journey to the other side of the world when the world has come to you? I live in a famous city, a city that has been sold to you in a thousand ways. A myriad of writers have set their dramas upon its ancient streets, discoursed upon its architecture and provided guides to its quads and colleges. Few even mention the Cowley Road, let alone the people who live and work there. Many of its inhabitants have made their own journeys from far away, under all kinds of circumstances. They have brought with them not only their cuisine, but also their beliefs, their values, their trades, their prejudices, their stories of the past and their hopes for the future. This is the other Oxford, the one never written about. This city has dispatched anthropologists, explorers, scientists, authors and poets to every nation represented on Cowley Road. Perhaps it is time to flip the coin and see ourselves through their eyes. In 1994, the artist Frances Alice walked through the streets of Havana wearing a pair of specially constructed magnetic shoes. Three years previously, he had taken a magnetised metal dog that he christened the Collector for a walk through the streets of Mexico City. At the end of these strolls, both the shoes and the Collector were covered in the metal detritus of the city, Somehow, this accretion was redolent of the overheard conversations, snatches of music, smells and other sensory impressions that one gathers on an urban walk. I have no magnetic shoes. Instead, I carry a notebook, a pen and an old-fashioned cassette recorder loaded with magnetised tape, with which I intend to capture the sounds of the voices I encounter. My analogue tape recorder will replace Elise's magnetic shoes. At those times when a recording device is inappropriate, in casual conversation, interacting with friends and neighbours, I will have to press a button in my head marked record. Then, when I summon up the characters that I have met upon my journey in the eye of my imagination, I will run the conversation again and try to convey their words as exactly as I can. It was Heraclitus, of course, who came up with the formulation that we are never able to step into the same river twice. If the Cowley Road is a river, the big fish lie hidden beneath the surface in the shadow of its banks. Landlords, entrepreneurs, developers, local politicians, wheeler-dealers, import-export men. The obverse of Heraclitus's maxim may be that one is never able to step out of the river the same twice. A neuron in the brain is altered with every experience. The self, if it exists, must be a constantly evolving thing. Those coming to the banks of the Ganges or the Jordan to immerse themselves do not expect to leave the same as they arrive. Perhaps this will apply to me also.
Carnival It is carnival. The smoke from a barbecue outside the Hilo Jamaican eating house drifts across the heads of the crowds that fill the street, like incense at a Greek Orthodox procession. Trade at the restaurant is brisk, and the red stripe is flowing. Skylarkin sound system have piled up their speaker cabinets against the front window and are pumping out their patented mix of reggae, ska and 60s rhythm and blues to an enthusiastic crowd. The man behind the decks is a living legend, the 60-something white reggae MC known as DJ Derek. He stands, smiling benignly behind his owlish glasses, an ever-present cigarette dangling from his lip, microphone in one hand and a bottle of beer in the other. Derek is not some late-arrival revivalist. He has been playing these records since they were pressed, starting out at functions in the black community in Bristol in the 1960s and progressing to clubs and festivals all over the world. This is why he is regarded with such awe by younger generations of DJs and why members of the crowd run up to have their photograph taken with him behind the decks. Adulation, he greets with amused tolerance. The man tending the barbecue lifts its lid and a cloud of heavily scented smoke obscures the sun. I love that smoke, Derek rasps, in gravel-throated Jamaican patois. Me don't smoke ganja, you know, just cigarette and strictly shag. Not necessarily in that order. And he drops another tune with perfect timing and the crowd roars its appreciation. A vintage 1960s ska instrumental blasts out a wild, rasping tenor sax soloing over a beat that rattles the windows. One of the characters of the Cowley Road has taken a prime position in front of the decks. Bob is a small Jamaican man in his fifties. Usually dressed in a zip-up windcheater with a black baseball cap pulled down over his eyes, he can be found wherever there is music playing in the pubs and clubs of the neighbourhood. Today, he is executing a complicated, balletic dance with the can of red stripe he is holding as a partner. He looks at the beer at the end of his outstretched arm with the tender gaze of a man regarding an adored sweetheart and circles it, demonstrating his best moves as if eager for a response from his steely-faced lover. He has the bodily control and range of facial expressions of a silent movie actor, but it is never clear if these performances are for an audience or merely to amuse himself. A few days earlier, I had been parking my car in the street where I live as I do so, and my daughter and I became aware of a man passing the car in the street, limping heavily, dragging one leg along the ground. He made a striking figure, wearing a jacket, loose-fitting trousers and a wide-brimmed straw hat in Cuban style, his whole body tilting with each step. Suddenly, a few yards ahead of us, he stopped limping and ran a few steps, crossing the road and striding hurriedly along the pavement. My daughter, who shares my fascination with neighbourhood characters, recognised Bob beneath his Cuban disguise. Quick, she said, let's see what he's doing. And we locked the car and moved to a position where we could observe his progress down the street. Another car was approaching, slowing down to park at the curb. As Bob drew up to it, he again started his exaggerated gimping, attracting the startled attention of those inside, only to begin walking normally a few yards further on, to the confusion of his onlookers. He didn't look back, to gauge the reaction of his audience, but strode on past the betting shop, 
a small man made bigger by a large hat and an obscure thespian ambition. Is there a syndrome that compels people to act and dance as others are forced to continually wash their hands or to utter their deepest secrets out loud? Compulsive performance disorder, perhaps? The carnival in June is East Oxford's answer to May Day, the university's day of licence, when the choristers of Magdalen pierce the dawn air with their singing and drunken students leap off Magdalen Bridge into the shallow and treacherous river, sustaining terrible injuries and the derision of the national press. While their celebration can appear to be the arcane ritual of an obscure, overprivileged sect, the carnival engages a wider spectrum of the community. Indeed, the official banners, in slightly worthy tones, encourage us to celebrate diversity. The original impetus for the carnival came from within the Jamaican community. The Caribbean, after all, along with Brazil and arguably West London, are the real homes of the carnival tradition. According to some, it was then hijacked by what they call do-gooders, middle-class professionals keen to organise the event in accord with their version of utopia. When the carnival began in 2000, the stalls that were licensed to set up in the park at Manzil Way, instead of catering to the hunger and thirst of the revellers, were all earnestly soliciting donations to various charities. This misunderstanding of the spirit of carnival was somehow typical of the neighbourhood. The city is the birthplace of some of the most important NGOs in the world, including Oxfam and a number of other organisations deserving our support. Sometimes those whose profession is fundraising for worthy causes cannot help seeing the gathering together of large crowds of people simply as an opportunity to proselytise instead of a time to forget the world's troubles and live for the moment. What do you need at a carnival? Red snapper barbecuing on the street. Music in unlikely places accompanied by unlicensed dancing. Alcohol freely available. A large, benevolent crowd that can control anyone who, after a day of drinking and smoking in the sun, becomes confused and aggressive. Above all, the quickest way to increase the sum of human happiness is to ban motor vehicles. Allow people to wander through those spaces usually rendered dangerous and noisy by traffic and you unleash a feeling of liberation, a glimpse of a better world that when it vanishes leaves a trace in the human heart. Bicycles, of course, are still permitted. Cyclists are, for the most part, heroes who risk life and limb every day to make the world a better place and should always be made welcome. Getting the agreement of the City Council to close Cowley Road to traffic for the whole of the carnival was the greatest achievement of the carnival committee. Once that happened, the carnival began to outgrow its beginnings and develop organically. My youngest son is taking part in the carnival procession with his fellow pupils at preschool. He is wearing a t-shirt that he has printed and a crown cut from red and green rubber that resembles something between a Native American headdress and a floral display. The day starts for us in a hall where hundreds of children from different schools are milling about trying to find their teachers, their parents or their costumes. The tumult is impressive. My son is finding it daunting and is keeping a firm hold on my hand. I listen to his worries with one ear, while the other is glued to my mobile phone. I have just returned from Montreal on a red-eye flight without my suitcase, which has gone on a brief holiday on its own. 
I am jet-lagged and bereft of almost all of my worldly possessions, as well as the notes of meetings at a book fair in New York, and am engaged in a continuous, long-distance conversation with airport baggage handlers in an attempt to track down my belongings. In my sleep-deprived state, I am almost moved to tears at the thought of the gifts I had bought for my wife and children lying abandoned in some godforsaken luggage bay. With an honesty that I would rather have been spared, a man on the end of the line tells me that my case has disappeared from the computer tracking system. It could be in Hong Kong, he muses. The belts at La Guarda for London and Hong Kong are adjacent. Or it could be in Toronto. Or perhaps it never left Montreal. Teachers are shouting above the hubbub made by the kids in an attempt to marshal their groups. Tears are being shed, whistles blown, hands tugged. I terminate the conversation, and we follow the crowd out to take up her position at the head of Cowley Road. The procession waits for the signal to begin. We are positioned right behind the local samba band, and their infectious rhythms are putting everyone in a party mood. A carnival procession is the embodiment of organised chaos. Unlike a military procession, for instance, each element within it has its own irregular momentum. The samba musicians come to the end of one set of rhythms and halt, acknowledging the cheers of the crowd, bringing the procession behind it to a halt in turn before their leaders give them a new set of instructions through a combination of sharp beats on her drum and blasts on a whistle. And they set off again, preceded by a group of frenzied dancers. Behind us, a woman in a gold bikini supports a massive structure that represents the sun. One of the bamboo poles that anchors it to her waist comes adrift, and the whole thing totters dangerously, threatening to fall on our heads. Helpers rush to her aid, and she moves forward cautiously, now with her own attendants in train, an uncrowned carnival queen. We do our best to maintain our position behind the banner carried by pupils from my son's school, but it isn't easy. He sits on my shoulders to get a better view. My phone rings. The baggage handlers at Heathrow confess that they are confused. The behaviour of my suitcase confounds their systems. It could be anywhere or nowhere, in the air or on the ground. They can't say. Behind us, supporters of Greenpeace bounce a giant inflatable globe up into the air above our heads. Like my suitcase, it becomes detached from its moorings and begins to spin dangerously out of orbit before they haul on the ropes and bring it back under control. The effort of remaining mentally attached to my absent possessions is too much. The ties connecting me to my suitcase are unravelling as the samba rhythms infiltrate deeper into my consciousness. My son is overtaken by a desperate urge to pee, and we flee the procession in double-quick time. I put my phone away. The Merch Masala restaurant is closed, the proprietor out front on the pavement selling ice cream to passers-by but she kindly waves us inside to use the facilities. By the time we rejoin the procession, it has lurched forward and we have lost our position. We struggle through a chaotic collage of sounds and impressions. A troop of Bangor drummers in purple and gold costumes spin like dervishes. African dancers in fake leopard-skin bikinis crouch low, running through the crowd. A Chinese brass band of serious-faced elderly men in black suits blast their long-stemmed trumpets in our faces, while an orange dragon writhes furiously at their feet. 
As we inch forward, I look up at the people hanging out of the windows and the groups sitting on flat roofs, smoking hubble-bubble pipes and lifting drinks aloft in solution as we pass. All neighbourhoods need to be picked up every now and then and shaken, rearranged. They emerge once the streets have been hosed down and the debris swept away, rubbing their eyes and their sore heads with a rueful smile, a little looser, a little friendlier. A measure of anarchy is good for any highly controlled society. The forces of law and order demonstrate that they are secure enough in their position to relax the reins for a day, step back and allow people to break a few rules, enjoy themselves, thereby increasing the chances of public cooperation when normal business resumes. Warning, reads the printed notice pinned to every stage. Noise levels in excess of 85 dBA. Ear damage possible. Earplugs available from the information tent. This seems to me the right balance of official intervention. Go ahead and party, they seem to say, but don't sue us if you go deaf. If you are worried about your ears, we have earplugs. Otherwise, it's up to you. It feels good to retrace my route down Cowley Road, accompanied by thousands of revellers. Pilgrimages were ever thus, part solitary, part communal celebration. Groups of my son's fans, among the onlookers lining the pavement, reach out to us, asking, Where were you? We waited ages for the school banner to reach us, and then we couldn't see you. My son shrugs nonchalantly, licking his ice cream, as if to say, A man's got to do what a man's got to do. Speak to his agent, I feel like saying. I'm just the chauffeur. On the main stage, there is a power cut, and the London Community Gospel Choir are forced to perform a cappella above the noise from the street. The audience members sit silent, spellbound through amazing grace. We meet my son's friend, Abdullah, who introduces us to the Bangor musicians who are resting in the shade of some trees in the park at Manzil Way. My son sits on a man's knee, holding a drum while I take a photo. He is laughing. The man's impressive moustache tickles the back of his neck. This is good boy, the man tells me earnestly, pinching his cheek. We shake hands with the music troupe and retire to sit in the graveyard under the trees, eating chicken curry and chapati from a Bangladeshi stall. I lie on my back on the grass, the jet lag seeping out of my body onto the ground, my son's head on my chest, glad to be home. Sometimes this is the most precious communication between parent and child, two human beings inhabiting the same moment of time without words, the larger used as a piece of furniture by the smaller. I'm reminded that the families of most mammal species sleep in piles. The phone in my pocket vibrates. It is a text, telling me that my suitcase has been located and picked up from the airport by couriers. It will be delivered to my home within the next 12 hours. A journey in the hinterland. It is dusk when we hear something moving slowly and deliberately through the undergrowth. We are standing surrounded by the debris of generations of badger excavations, the fortified city of an embattled tribe, and the badger is returning after an early evening foray. He becomes aware of the presence of intruders in his kingdom at roughly the same moment as we notice his. Gradually, 
Almost imperceptibly his mask materialises in the gloom, between the dark lower leaves of a naturalised rhododendron. The black and white stripes on his head, so distinct in daylight, are remarkably effective camouflage in the twilight. We peer at each other short-sightedly. Suddenly, and silently, he is gone. Dudley has brought me to the woods on a humid weekday evening, straight from the train station. He walks most evenings in summer, leaving behind the stress of his job and the pounds that publishing lunches threaten to add to his waistline, emerging from the woods like the Rue, a leaner and wiser man. As we stride briskly through the sweltering gloom, our shirts sticking to our backs with sweat, we talk, startling monk-jack deer that catapult across our track, their young scarcely bigger than hares. At a turning in the path, a fallow deer stands poised for a moment, regarding us over its shoulder with an affronted expression, as though we were gatecrashers at a private party. Its departure is literally flight, a series of graceful parabolas involving minimum contact with the ground. At first sight, the woods resemble deep nature. On closer inspection, they are carefully and scientifically coppiced, the undergrowth between the trunks thinned out, with here and there a fallen trunk left to decompose, to encourage those insect and vegetable life forms that feed upon and engineer decay. This protected natural world, five minutes from the busy ring road around the city, is artificially maintained, the site of academic studies and wildlife documentaries. Every inhabitant of these intensively settled islands learns to accept that the managed landscape can be as beautiful as any wilderness. This one is farmed not for financial profit but for scientific knowledge, a crop that requires less rather than more intervention, a helping hand rather than a war of conquest and chemical attrition. There are no scientists about tonight, unless we count ourselves natural scientists bent on triggering beneficial chemical reactions within ourselves through this most ancient of pursuits, tramping the woods, hoping to shed something that has adhered to us in the city, like grass snakes intent on sloughing their skins. We are discussing our working lives. We both find ourselves inhabiting a position on the outer edges of large organisations. For him as the publisher of a small but significant imprint that has been swallowed by a huge multinational publishing group, it is the first time he has experienced being an outsider in his own workplace, expected to plead for the life of his books at board meetings that have begun to feel more like hanging assizes than a gathering of creative minds. His own position, he knows, could be signed away at the stroke of a corporate pen, the imprint retaining only a ghostly existence as a brand to be applied to certain projects as his overlords see fit. He finds this position particularly uncomfortable because he is someone used to being at the centre. I, it becomes clear as we talk, have operated on the fringe my entire career. Even though I currently work at a major national institution, it is still in a position at its edge, with a remit rather different to that of many of my colleagues. It is always an option to complain about the difficulties of such an existence. It is more interesting, perhaps, to recognise the element of unconscious choice that has shaped its trajectory. It could be that it derives from the same impulse that has led us both to settle in the area in which we live. A place outside, yet adjoining from the main city, 
from which one can observe and comment while retaining a sense of independence. This is not, after all, such a bad place to find oneself, we decide. Either geographically or professionally, our breath getting shorter as we climb a steep slope. We are not yet ready to trade our souls for corporate advancement. Yet we need to work. Therefore we must succeed at this precarious and sometimes uncomfortable high-wire act. We emerge from beneath the trees to look out across a valley, raucous with wheeling rooks, to the car factory in the distance at the end of Cowley Road, glinting in the evening sun. The science is working. Our hearts are lighter. I am usefully reminded that sometimes, when there is no train or plane fast enough to transport you beyond the reach of your troubles, a long walk may be your only way out. So there we have it, episode one of Waterboat Woman. I hope you've enjoyed your trip down Cowley Road as much as I have. When I first had the idea to start a podcast, I didn't know much about copyright or publishing rights, so you can imagine how pleased I was when James and his publishers both got back to me saying they liked the idea and they'd be happy to give me permission to read this brilliant book. If you liked what you heard and want to read the whole thing, which I thoroughly recommend, you can buy signed copies of Isolarian on the Blackwell's online shop. You'll find a link to this on my website. The creation of this podcast is in itself a real journey for me. From the conception to the recording, I'm learning so much. I'd love to know what you think, and if you have any ideas or suggestions of books that are in a similar vein to these that you'd like to hear me read, just send me a message on Facebook or email me at freyawarsi at icloud.com. Episode 2, I am thrilled to announce, will be All the Devils Are Here by David Seabrook. Whilst Isolarian is set on Cowley Road, where I grew up, All the Devils Are Here is all about a man's journey around Kent, where I live now. The book is described online as a deranged exploration of the coast towns of Thanet and the Medway. He fuses his observations of these depressing landscapes, city centres full of unemployed young men, asylum seekers and dodgy characters, with literary and historical associations that seem through his eyes more like a bad dream than heritage advertisements for the local tourist board. Tune in next time on the 15th of May to find out more. Until then, keep treading water and stay safe out there.